Hey guys, Pastor Dave here. Uh, just letting you know that this sermon is going to sound really different from the other ones you're used to if you're regularly listening to this podcast. And there's a fun story behind it. So we just had this crazy adventure the Sunday morning that this one was preached. Uh, we all got here, we started getting the service ready, and the lights just went out in our sanctuary. Uh, we did a little bit of investigating and realized that it was a flaw deep in the building and there was not going to be any getting it fixed before the worship service. So we had to move the entire worship service up to our fellowship hall at the last minute, which created this really neat sense of uh, just, I guess, uh, amazement around the service, uh, that we weren't where we normally met and we weren't doing what we were normally doing, but the people of God were gathered and there we were singing and God was present anyhow. And it taught us a lot and reminded us a lot about the nature of Sunday worship. Uh, the reason I'm telling you that is that because of that, we weren't using any of our normal equipment, doing anything fancy. Uh, the recording that you're about to hear is literally uh, my cell phone sitting on a music stand in front of me while I'm preaching into a handheld microphone. Uh, and I want you to know that because uh, I think it can be a powerful testimony to the fact that the Word of God speaks like the Word of God, no matter how cool it sounds or how messed up it sounds. The thing's going to sound bad. You'll hear papers going across the thing. It just doesn't sound good at all. Uh, but here's the thing. The voice of the Lord shatters the cedars of Lebanon, right? The voice of the Lord strips the forests bare. And it doesn't matter what it was recorded with, right? Uh, when God speaks, it's powerful. And so if the sermon speaks to you, I just want that to be a testament that the power that our church works in and the power that every church works in doesn't come in the fanciness of our production. If that were the case, we've been dead a long time ago. Uh, no, it comes from the power of, of the word, the power of the voice of the Lord speaking through the word. And so as the Lord works, I pray in your life through this message, I pray he would just remind you of how powerful he is when he speaks. All right, if you would, turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to be in verses 10 and following through the rest of the chapter today. Uh, you know, God never promises us a problem-free life. And yet, when problems come, it's so tempting to treat those problems as if they're a threat to God's promises, right? Like, we can be standing here together singing, He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. Like, we believe that, and I know we believe that this morning. And then on Monday... Your, your job gets threatened and it all just gets thrown into chaos, right? And then it's, oh, does God even love me? Like, is this even true? Like one threat can come in and change the structure of your heart to where you're just, you're tempted not to trust in the promises anymore. Your child's safety gets threatened and all of a sudden it's like all the promises of God are under attack and are threatened. Everything gets called into question and even if you can preserve your faith through those moments, then you've got this question of well, what do I do? How can I act in wisdom in this perplexing, threatening situation, or I don't know what to do. Well, the story we're going to look at in the Bible today puts one of our heroes in the same situation. Uh, for the past few weeks, we've been talking about Abram and God's call to Abram when he receives great promises from God. He shows great faith as he trusts in those promises. And I wonder if some of us are looking at that thinking, man, this guy is awesome. He has great faith. And I'm the guy that cheats against my own kids in Monopoly. Like, I'm, like, I'm not going to measure up to this guy's awesomeness. And if that's you, you actually have a friend in Abram because he's going to be put in a threatening situation today. 
And I'll just give you the spoiler alert. He just flops big time. He comes back down to earth. And we see that our heroes have a lot more in common with us than we think. Uh, You know, everything that we do here is built on the foundation that we call the good news of Jesus Christ. And if you have not heard it before, I want to share that with you first before we get into the depths of this word. And the reason for that is that this news acts as a foundation and everything we talk about other than that is like a house built on it. Uh, Another way you could think of it is that this good news is like milk that you just need first before you can move on to solid food. And so let me just just lay before you the, the... clear message of Jesus Christ. It's very simple. I'll tell you a story that I'll tell it to you. There was once a Roman prison guard, and he was guarding two men who were preachers of the gospel, Paul and Silas, uh, in a Philippian prison. And uh, he had heard this gospel preached. He, he didn't believe it quite so much, but he's there, and the guys start singing hymns, even though they're imprisoned and suffering. And then there's a great earthquake. And it comes clear to him, oh, this stuff is real. This God stuff they talk about is real. This is the real God who really has authority over me. And he just puts himself in front of these men and says, what must I do to be saved? Right? Well, what did he need to be saved from? He needed to be saved from the consequences of living a whole life as if God isn't real and we're not accountable to him. Because God is real and we are accountable to him. In fact, after we die, we go before him in judgment. And if we do this, having lived our whole life as if he didn't even exist, that's a terrifying thing to think about. So this jailer just got himself in front of these two preachers. What do I have to do to be saved from that, from that kind of future? And their answer is really simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. It's that simple. Uh, This Jesus that we talk about, you'll hear about how he died and he rose from the dead. Uh, He died and he is alive. You'll hear about how he's worthy of all of our worship, how he is God in the flesh. All the things that he says about himself, we just trust him, that he is what he says he is and he's powerful to save us. And if we do that, he saves us. So that's the foundation, right? And so with a trust that he is who he says he is, uh, that he can save us and that his words are good, we look at these words in the Bible. That's why we spend uh, every Sunday we're going through just a different text in the Bible saying, what's this say to us? Because it's all built on that foundation of the gospel that saves us. If you have never trusted in him in that way, I just call you right now. You don't have to like do a fancy sign or anything. Just put your faith in him and you will be saved. Uh, So I pray that as we look at the story today, uh, what will happen for those of you that have been following him for a long time, it will give you wisdom to light the way when you're in threatening situations. And for those of you that have not put your trust in him, I just pray it shows you that his ways are good and he is good. He's worthy of putting your faith in. So let's look at Genesis 12, verses 10 through 20. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came about when he came near to Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you're a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and I may live on account of you. It came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And therefore he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and donkeys and camels. 
But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called him in and said, what is this you have done? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him. And they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. The word of the Lord. So, okay, first what I want to do is, is set up this story. Because basically, Abram is in this threatening situation. And he has got to choose between godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. So we'll kind of set all that up. And then you can look and see, okay, which one did he choose? So the, the setup here is that Abram has just received amazing promises from the Lord. I mean, incredible promises. He's going to have a great nation come from him, which means he will have a child that will birth this nation, at least one child. Uh, the Lord is going to protect him by blessing those who bless him and cursing those who curse him. And he will become a blessing to all nations. So he has received these promises. He trusts them in faith. Uh, now there's a problem, though. There's a famine. And they haven't figured out irrigation yet like we have. So they don't have any way of dealing with that except go somewhere that has a really good river like the Nile River. So they go to Egypt because of the famine so that they don't starve. Well, that solves that problem, except the way people treated travelers then was really terrible. Um, people often saw someone who was traveling uh, as, as someone they could easily victimize, right? Like they're far from the protections of their home. They don't look like us. They don't talk like us. Let's just kill them and take all their stuff. Like that was pretty common back then. It was not safe to travel or to be a sojourner in the land, which is why when Israel becomes a nation, their laws have a lot of protections for travelers and for sojourners. Uh, so he's got to figure out how to deal with this. On top of that, he's been blessed with all kinds of stuff. He's one of the richest men in the world. So he's coming in with an entourage that everybody's going to want. And he's got this just drop-dead beautiful wife, like beautiful enough that people are going to praise her to Pharaoh later on with him that everyone's going to want. And so he sees the threat. They're going to kill me. They're going to take all the stuff. They're going to enslave all my people, and they're going to take my wife. And he's afraid of this. So... In that threatening situation, he's got to figure out just what to do. Well, he's feeling like a lot of us feel when our job is threatened or when our kids are threatened or when your position in the church or in a volunteer board somewhere else is threatened. Uh, like when you're driving through a bad neighborhood at night and suddenly you get in a fight with your spouse because you're both like feeling super tense even though there was nothing to fight about. Uh, when your spouse maybe gains the upper hand in that little silent battle the two of you have, like just feels under threat. And that's why I say this story gives us a warning and an encouragement when we're threatened. Um, now, when you're in a jam, you probably know this, it takes wisdom to get out of it, right? You've got to be pretty smart to get out of a really tough situation. Uh, and one of the foundational things the Proverbs lay for you and the whole Bible lays for you is that there are two kinds of wisdom out there. There's godly wisdom and there's worldly wisdom. And the Proverbs lay the choice before you. You've got to choose which road you're going to go down. Uh, so what I'm going to do here is I'm going to outline, like, what are the two? How can you tell the two apart? And then I think when we look at Abram's story, we'll see very clear which one he picked. So we'll look at worldly wisdom first. Uh, worldly wisdom is basically the plans, the scheming, the lies, the manipulating, the strategies and tactics that we pull when we're being selfish, basically. Like on a foundation of I want something over and above somebody else, like I'm trying to, you know, I want my business to succeed and his business to fail. And under that kind of motive, 
Uh, you could call it selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. That's what the book of James calls it. On that foundation, uh, we'll dream up all kinds of plans to figure out you know, how to get ahead of other people. I mean, we'll lie about them, we'll scheme, we'll manipulate people, all kinds of psychodynamic things that people try that I don't even understand. All that kind of stuff, that's, that's worldly wisdom. And the book of James says that it leads to disorder and chaos and every vile practice. And that just means conflict and corruption. So on that foundation of selfishness, we get all those schemes together and it leads to doing terrible things as a group together and conflict among each other. So for instance, you get two guys in a conversation, right? And they're both trying to win the conversation. You ever see two guys have a conversation like that? Like they're both trying to show that they're better than the other guy, right? It's not gonna be long before they resort to some pretty silly stuff in that conversation. And we know it's gonna go south by it, or it's not very long until that turns into a fight, right? That's just the progression that that kind of worldly wisdom goes. Uh, maybe it's a business. Maybe, uh, maybe you're part of a business or you're running a business where it's you know, bottom line profit and that is all we care about. Like we don't care about anything else at all, just making money. If you attack business with that kind of philosophy, it's not gonna be long before it's really tempting to lie about the competition or to pay your employees unfairly or to not take care of your customers. All sorts of like shady things you're going to want to do because all you care about is the profit, right? Um, maybe in a, uh, in a conversation with your spouse that's like you're in an argument, you're both trying to win the argument. Uh, all kinds of moves and damaging things you can say to each other and all kinds of awful things that come out of I'm trying to win this argument and make sure that you lose this argument. From that comes all of our worldly wisdom, all of our conflicts. It comes down to selfishness like that. So uh, that's worldly wisdom on one hand. If we can see that clearly, well, sometimes you get in a jam and you're like, okay, well, I can't do all the moves that everybody else can do. What can I do? And it's almost tempting to just be passive and not do anything at all. And just say, oh, God will get me out of it. I'm just going to sit here until he gets me out of it. But actually what he encourages us toward instead is godly wisdom. We use godly wisdom to get out of difficult situations. Godly wisdom is outlined in the Proverbs and the Psalms and Ecclesiastes and the book of Job. And the foundation, it says, is the fear of the Lord. So rather than being built on selfish ambition, it's built on the fear of the Lord. Uh, for instance, uh, phrases like this are repeated all over the Psalms and Proverbs, but uh, Psalm 111.10 is one of them. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and a good understanding have all those who do his commandments. So the foundation for godly wisdom is the fear of the Lord. <clears throat> Some of you are like, well, what's that? Does that mean I gotta be afraid of God in order to be wise? No, what that means is you see just like a glimpse of how glorious he is and you just respond with awe and trembling before his glory and that leads you to obey him. It's awe and obedience, very simply. More complicated, you just see how awesome he is. You're shaking in your boots, you've you got your hand in the air worshiping like he is awesome and because he's awesome, I'm gonna do what he says. It's that kind of reverence, obedient reverence like that. That idea repeated all over the Psalms and Proverbs is a foundation of a different kind of wisdom, of a good and godly wisdom that can get you out of jams. For instance, here's what Proverbs 2 say about the good that that wisdom can do for you. It says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So he will give you good wisdom. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. 
guarding the paths of justice, and he perseveres the way of the godly ones. And then, if you get wisdom, you will discern righteousness and justice, and equity and every good course. For wisdom will enter your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will guard you, understanding will watch over you to deliver you from the way of evil. So it's going to be a way of deliverance for you. From the man who speaks perverse things to deliver you from evil people. From those who leaves the, the paths of righteousness to walk in the ways of darkness. Who delights in doing evil and rejoice in the perversity of evil. Whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. So there are tricky situations in life, right? And if you live very long, you're going to come into contact with some shady people, right? Some dangerous people. How do you survive? In a world like that, it's not worldly wisdom. It's not using the same tricks they use, and it's not being passive. It's godly wisdom. It's the wisdom that God gives you in the fear of the Lord that becomes a protection to you. So instead of building it on scheming and manipulation and other things, now you're building your wisdom on honesty and on diligence and on the real insight into human nature and human relationships that the Proverbs give you, and that will bless you all of your days. And you're building on a foundation of God is awesome and I'm going to do his ways rather than a foundation of how can I get ahead of this other guy, right? So that's the difference there. So a business that is working in godly wisdom is still going to make money. I mean, they want to provide for themselves. Uh, but what they're going to do is they're saying, we're going to do this the Lord's way. So we're going to build our business on honesty. And we're going to build it with diligent, hard work, like the Proverbs say to do. And we're going to use the insight into human nature and human relationships that God gives us in the Proverbs to prosper our business. We're going to take care of our employees and be generous to them. When you do those kind of things, it can tend to flourish your business. Now you're flourishing in godly wisdom instead of kind of scheming and try to grasp at it yourself. Uh, similarly, you know, a uh, like a couple, for instance, he's a couple before, right? A married couple, uh, maybe they're in an argument. Worldly wisdom can just rip that union right apart right there. But if instead you're saying, all right, right now, I'm going to love the Lord my God, I'm going to love my neighbor, my wife, my husband, as myself. Uh, and you show that consistency, like those opportunities in those fights when you could have damaged her or damaged him so badly with your word and your, with your tongue, but you didn't do it. And after like five years of your spouse looking back and saying, man, there are a lot of times where she could have said something that would have just broken me and she didn't do it. That's going to that's gonna change the way a man looks at his wife. That's going to change the health and the nature of their marriage. And same thing for a husband. So you build it on the fear of the Lord. You build your wisdom on that. And all of a sudden you're flourishing in a good and godly wisdom. Now this stuff isn't guaranteed. It's just generally the way that the world works. So, Okay. So that's worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. Two roads you can go down. You can choose either one of them in a jam, right? Built on selfishness, scheming leads to conflict. Built on the fear of the Lord, doing things the Lord's way tends to lead to good and better things and peace and virtue and all of that. Now, let's look in Genesis 12 and we'll see which one Abraham chose. What does he do? What's the foundation of it? We'll look at verse 11. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you're a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me. But they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. You see it? Bad move, right? What's his foundation that he's operating from? He says it. 
so that it will go well with me because of you, right? He's being selfish. He wants it to go well for him. And what's his technique? What's his strategy here? Let's lie, right? And the Lord throughout the Proverbs tells us now, now he didn't have Proverbs, we do, but we know now how much the Lord hates when we do that, right? So they live a lie so that he can prosper. This is textbook worldly wisdom that he's operating in. Here's the, here's the scheme, basically. So, like I said, travelers, they get mistreated a lot, especially back then. They would see how, like, matronly and beautiful she is. And, you know, it really would be plausible that they would kill him, take her, take all this stuff, right? That's because, as the husband, he's the target. So this is a world that takes adultery very seriously, but sadly does not take murder all that seriously, especially murder of travelers. Um, so, whereas we might look at that a little differently, you know, maybe she'll try to, maybe they'll try to steal his wife from him or something. They would never have done that, but they may have been willing to kill over it. So, if they go in there and she is what everyone wants, and he is the husband, then he's the target, right? He's the one they've got to take out if they want her. But if they go in there and he's her brother, well, now they don't have to kill him to get to her. And now what they have to do is win his favor. Because if you want to marry a little sister in that world, you've got to get through big brother, right? You've got to get his favor and his approval. And they're only going to be there for like a year or two until the drought goes away. And so it's just this perfect scheme. Like everyone thinks that she's his sister. They can still go home to the same tent because they're brother and sister. That works out great. And instead of targeting him, they're going to be coming to him, giving him gifts, doing anything they can to try to win his favor, thinking maybe he will like me enough that he will give me his sister in marriage. And he can just say, you know what? My sister's not really ready for a husband yet. Maybe come back in like two years, you know, then maybe she'll be ready. And then everyone's trying to get his favor for like two years, right? And, but by the end of the two years, they're back in Israel and they're gone. The whole thing's done. So it's this brilliant scheme to try to get through the situation. Problem is, it's built on a lie. She's his wife and they're lying and saying that they're brother and sister. So everyone wins except all they have to do is lie. Uh, that's textbook worldly wisdom. And so basically... This is a story where, like you and I have been at times in our lives, uh, Abram is threatened. Uh, and in this particular story, he resorts to worldly wisdom. And so it shows us the consequences of that. And the crazy thing is that this is when he has God's promises behind him, right? God has promised him that anyone who blesses him, he will bless. And anyone who curses him, God will curse. So if some guy walks up to him and says, I want your wife when the sun goes down tonight, you're a dead man. Well, because of the promises of God, that guy is going to be dead by sundown because the Lord is going to curse anyone who curses Abram. Uh, he's protected. He's safe. On top of this, he's promised that he'll have many descendants and he has no children. So he just knows, like, I'm not dying until I have a son. He doesn't need to fear for his life because he's got God's promises that he will be alive at least long enough to bear a son. But even though he's got those promises, uh, he still chooses to resort in worldly wisdom. Well, every plan sounds good until you try it, right? Uh, there's all kinds of quotes about that. Soldiers say uh, no plan survives first contact with the ground. Uh, Mike Tyson says everyone got a plan until you bust them in the mouth. Um, you know, this is how it works, right? You can get a great scheme together, and then when it actually, like, boots hit the ground, like, 
everything is off. Or sometimes you come to church on Sunday morning and the lights don't work. And so, you know, great plan, right? Uh, that's just how it happens. Well, that's what happens here too. Uh, he's got a brilliant scheme here and, uh, and maybe it even worked for a while. Uh, it worked so well though that the princes of Pharaoh saw how beautiful she was and uh, they praise her even to Pharaoh. Um, they, they're like, Pharaoh, you've got to see this one. This is a woman worthy of Pharaoh's courts. Now, you wouldn't expect that to happen, right? Like, it's not very often that the, the reputation of one person goes before the king like that, right? Like, the, the beauty of one person goes all the way to the president, all the way here from Indiana. Like, not very often that that happens, but it happened there. <laughs> Evidently, she was that beautiful. And so what Pharaoh does is he says... Fantastic. Bring her in. Send the brother a great haul of stuff. Send sheep, send oxen, send servants, send anything he might want. Even send him camels. And hardly anybody had domesticated camels then. So that would be like somebody giving you like a hundred Teslas. Like it just, you know, nobody has that yet. It's a new thing. And so send him, send him the camels, send him everything, but bring the woman to me and she's coming into my harem. And so the plan could not have gone worse. Uh, now, Sarah is trapped in Pharaoh's harem. We don't really know what happens to her there, and things are looking bad. So this is basically like the plot line of like any Pixar movie, right? Like something's bad, we get a plan together, we try to execute it, and it goes terribly, and then we gotta try to dig out of it. Just pick any Toy Story movie, and that's the, the plot of it, basically. Um, well, here's how they get out of this one. Um, Remember, God had said, him who blesses you, I will bless, and him who curses you, uh, I will curse, right? Uh, and in verse 17, we see the Lord stay true to that promise. Pharaoh had taken Abram's wife, even though he didn't know he had done it. And here's what happens. Verse 17. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So the one that cursed him is cursed great plagues come down god intervenes and protects him now we'll spend more time on that later because it deals more with the other point that i want to make from it um let's for this now let's move on we'll look at verse 18 pharaoh hears about this becomes enraged at what's going on he realizes that he's taken this man's wife and so he calls abram to him you imagine getting called by the king of the land getting called into the oval office to get chewed out over something that you have done. This is what happens to Abram. He goes up and Pharaoh calls to him in verse 18. He says, what is this you have done to me? Can you imagine the king saying that to you? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So I took her for my wife. Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him. And they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. Talk about getting dressed down by the king of the land, right? And I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but people that are, they say that this last sentence he says, now then, here is your wife, take her and go, uh, that it comes across in the original language even more like rudely and abrupt than we could translate to English. Because rather than like complete grammar, it's only four words. So you know how we like, 
Someone is so mad that they're speaking in one word sentences like, I can't believe you did that. Somebody just hits that rhythm to you sometimes. They're so mad. He literally says, here, wife, take, go. Just get out. He's full of rage against Abram over what has happened here. He even sends a guard to escort him out, right? Now, if you're living, if you work in a really secure place, this probably isn't true, but in a lot of places, if you quit your job, you pack up your desk and you go. If you get fired, they're going to escort you out, right? And that's kind of the dynamic of what's going on. This guy is a troublemaker. Watch him all the way out. And the most telling thing is he doesn't even respond. Like you would expect him to at least say like, I'm sorry, or something, explain himself, something. And he just, he just goes because he knows he's done wrong. So, so many things like that uh, put in by the narrator so that we can know uh, this was not a good thing that he did. Uh, this indeed is a warning. Uh, it's a warning against resorting to worldly wisdom when you've got the promises of God behind you. He's threatened, he schemes up a lie, it goes belly up, and he leaves hanging his head, rebuked by the highest authority in the land. Uh, so the big point is, don't trust in worldly wisdom when you've got the promises of God behind you. You have such powerful things at your disposal that God has given you. Don't trust in your own scheming. Don't trust in your own craftiness and your ability to concoct a lie and a crazy plan. you got God's promises behind you. Now, that story here is here because God knows us, right? And these, a lot of these Old Testament stories are, are warning stories when they go south. First Corinthians says that to us. And the reason it's there is that this word is living and active, and it knows me, and it knows you. And if it knows us, it knows that we need to hear this too. It knows that when we are threatened, we're tempted to do the same thing in worldly wisdom as well. We just immediately just forget what the promises of God are and go off in our own direction, just like he did. So we've got to see the warning here, cautioning us not to scheme or manipulate or lie or cheat or flatter. So what do you do? Instead, uh, you trust in the words and promises that God has given you. That's the answer. Uh, One of those promises is godly wisdom. He says in James that he gives wisdom to all those who ask. If you go before him just day after day, week after week, for an extended time, just asking for wisdom, he'll give it to you. Especially if you're seeking it in his word and you're, you're soaking yourself in the Proverbs, committing them to memory, just trying to get everything you can out of them, looking for Proverbs that apply to situations in your life so you can see how they connect into real life. You search for wisdom and you ask God for it and he promises you will find it. And that can get you out of a lot of situations. Uh, just thinking even of like the career field that you're in. Uh, And there are probably shady people in your career field. I mean, I'm in Christian ministry, and there are shady people in my career field. I'm sure there are shady people in your career. But how can you navigate through that kind of work environment, those of you that are working? How how do you do that with those weird characters in there? You're going to need supernatural wisdom, especially when you can't resort to the techniques that they resort to. You need God to give you better wisdom than you can get yourself. 
And the way you get that is by seeking it in the word and asking him for it repeatedly. He promises. He gives it generously to those who ask. Another promise he gives you when you're under stress like that is the other point that I want to make from this story. And that is that God delivers his people. He promises, I will deliver my people. And you can see this in two ways. Uh, one, by zooming out and seeing this story in the whole picture of the Bible. And the other one, by zooming in on one character, which I'll get to in a minute. Uh, let me put the, the, let's zoom out. Uh, let me put the first part to you this way. Those of you that know the Bible well, just try to imagine what story this sounds like. And I'll give you the details here. Let's think of a story where God's people go to Egypt because of a famine. But things go bad. And scary, oppressive things start to go on. But then God sends down plagues upon Egypt until the Pharaoh says, get out. Does that sound like any really familiar story that you know from the Bible? That's the story of Moses in the Exodus, right? And this story has all those little details in it, even down to Egypt, even down to the plagues, all those little things as a way of kind of being a prequel, like a prefiguring to what is going to happen to Abram's descendants, right? So the Lord is saying, There are times all throughout history where my people are stuck in a foreign land and every time I will deliver them, right? They're stuck in Egypt here. The Lord rains down plagues and delivers them. They go back to Egypt later. They spend 400 years there, most of them in slavery, and the Lord rains down plagues and delivers them and brings them out. Generations later, they go to Babylon. They're forced, they're taken captive, taken to another nation in Babylon where they must wait for 70 years And with great and amazing things, the Lord brings them home again. That's called the period of the exile. So there's this motif throughout Scripture where God's people go to a foreign place. They're stuck there. They can't get out of there. But God will deliver them. Now, why is that important for you and I? Well, because there's one more time when that happens to God's people, and it's right now. Um, The Lord refers to us in the book of 1 Peter as a first of Christians in the church age as sojourners and exiles, travelers and exiles, right? Travelers like Abram was in Egypt, like out of our homeland. Exiles stuck in a land that is not our home. Now, we love the nation we live in, but it's not our final home, right? We are a people made for another place. And so what this story does is give us the first prefiguring of the day when the Lord will deliver us from all of the shadiness that goes on around us, all of the perplexing, threatening situations that go on around us. And when he does, it will be as big a deal as the plagues raining down on Pharaoh's house. It will be as dramatic as a summer blockbuster. He comes back and just awesome things start to happen. The double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. He judges the nations. I mean, just amazing things that we get the first little glimpse of here when this one house has plagues rain down on it and we're delivered from it. So big picture, whatever threatening situation we are in, the Lord will deliver his people from it. Sometimes we have to wait generations for it. We may still have to wait generations, or it may happen tonight and we'll never worship in that sanctuary again. Who knows? But he's coming back and he will deliver us. That means, big picture, When some presidential candidate gets up in a debate and starts saying hateful things about conservative churches and it gets a rise out of the room and they start cheering, some of you guys saw this happen in a debate a few weeks ago, we don't have to be afraid. Uh, Maybe people will come after us. Maybe we will get oppressed. Who knows? But the Lord will deliver his people. 
And so we don't have to resort to worldly wisdom. We don't have to resort to lies and scheming and all the things that we might be tempted in our fear to do and ways we may be tempted to react to things like that with just blood just boiling in our veins over this stuff. We don't have to do that. The Lord says, I will deliver my people and when I do, it will be big and you will know it. So that's the big picture. You can see this in another way by zooming in on Sarah's life. Um, now, this story, she's the one that fares the worst in the story, right? She's the one that gets taken into Pharaoh's harem. And one of the questions that we ask, and we don't have an answer to it, is what happened to her there? Like, did, did Pharaoh have time to force himself upon her before she got rescued? And the text doesn't answer that. It leaves it open. So, I mean, real question here. Did the mother of our faith get raped by an Egyptian Pharaoh? We don't know. She might have. And we do know, though, that her great-granddaughter, Dinah, will be raped. And we do know that her many descendants will be enslaved by Egypt. And so we have the beginning of seeing, potentially, God's people being oppressed. Terrible, horrible things happening to God's people. May have happened to Sarah right there. And that tells us a really important nuance about God delivering his people. And that is this. Oppressed does not mean forsaken. God's people do get oppressed. Stuff like that happens. And there's not a promise in Scripture that it'll never happen to you or to me or to any of us. But Sarah shows us here, oppressed or potentially oppressed does not mean forsaken. The Lord saw what was going on. Whatever it was, he rained down plagues and took her out. And he says, I will deliver you. Uh, And so that can be rather scary because that means that none of us have a guarantee that we won't be oppressed in the rest of our lives. And for some of us, looking back on awful things that have happened to us, wondering, where was God when that happened? Well, Sarah can give us an answer to that. God was there, and he saw it as vividly as she did, and she remembers whatever happened as vividly as she did. And he says, I have not forgotten you. I have my eyes upon you. I have my hand upon you. And when the time comes, I will deliver you and your oppressor will meet justice. So he promises this happens in every occasion. It just may not happen right now. So today, uh, it's not that God will deliver you from your immediate situation necessarily. He may, he may not. But the promise is sure, people of God, he will come and he will deliver you just as he did that day, just as he did when the people were enslaved in Egypt, just as he did in the exile when he brought them back, just as he did so many times in the New Testament. He will come for you, he will come for us, and he will deliver us. If we can trust in that promise, he's coming for us, we can stay godly when we get threatened. We put our hope in the promises of God, and he keeps us pure, strong, and wise. Let's pray.